Hello, and welcome to The Kosh. I'm your host, Timber Smith, and The Kosh is a podcast that spotlights people who have had an association with Oshkosh or the surrounding Fox Cities area. Good morning, Kosh listeners. How are you doing? Um, Let me give my normal uh, beginning of podcast reports. Uh, It is an amazingly sunny day today, um, which actually has me excited um, cause God knows this has been a dreary, dreary winter. And, um, I think it's going to make for great energy in today's episode. Um, once again, I think, you know what I'm going to say? I don't know why I get these amazing guests, but yet I do, I get fire guests and I get super excited about them. And today's guests I'm really excited about because you know what? I've had conversations with them and, they're usually fire. So <laughs> let today's episode be no different than that. Um, so without further ado, today's guest is Patty Hefferton. Did I get that right? You did. Yes. I'm not going to lie. I've got a reputation of slaughtering names, but I've been on a streak. Irish names are, you know, so hard to pronounce, though. Is that, is that what it is? <laughs> I wouldn't have known it was Irish. Yeah, it is. Um, funny fact, that's my uh, married name. And my husband loves to tell a story about how he had a middle school principal yeah. who uh, would let kids with Irish last names go home early on St. Patrick's Day. Bruh. What? Yeah. And he did not believe him that his last name was Irish. He, he did not. He didn't believe that Heffernan was an Irish last name and my husband like went and got his family crest and he brought his lineage like he did this whole thing so he could get out early on St. Patrick's Day and he never let him and he still didn't let him still didn't let him wow that seems wrong I'm gonna I'm gonna agree (laughs) but I kind of like the idea um, I like the idea that he put some effort into stuff because school was not his his strong suit but he really ooh. Do his homework on that. that on that one. <laughs> that, hey, yeah. well, that's because he was going to get out early. And I mean, I, I, I want to know who that educator was because that actually seems kind of cool. You know, he probably could tell you. I, I don't remember the name. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Patty, you ready to jump in? Yeah, I can tell you a little bit about me and where I come from. Um, so my name is Patty Heffernan. I have a training consulting and technical assistance business for substance use recovery oriented systems of care. We've consulted on federal, state and local legislation. Uh, We were part of the efforts to make sure that the uh, opioid settlement dollars went back to the counties um, that were on the lawsuit so that they could use those funds the way the community needs. Um, We also have a, a new nonprofit direct service uh, wraparound support program um, for people with a specific lived experience of having been through um, child welfare and substance use recovery, um, along with some overlap there with uh, domestic violence. And these are all coaches who uh, have this specific lived experience um, because this is a gap in the communities that I've seen. Even within the recovery community, there's not a lot of understanding of what that can be like. So that's our um, our business. Um, and as far as me, I um, I went into the foster system when I was eleven, and um, we I bounced around a lot. I think in sixth grade I was at like three different homes, Bruh. and then um, 
ended up enduring a lot of the abuse that you can endure in foster care. Um, abuses that uh, I didn't suffer in my own home. Um, so it just, you know, added to the portfolio of trauma, if you will. Um, and then uh, after, you know, being in the system for about four years, I was reunified with my mom. And uh, it took about four months for me to get into some serious trouble as a juvenile and enter into the juvenile justice system. Um, Bruh. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Nothing easy about that one. No, there's not. Um, especially since at the time, man, I had I had zero, zero, zero intention of reforming in any kind of way. Um, I I was gonna self destruct and I was gonna take the world down with me as much as I possibly could. Man, I was just mad, and um, I just kept getting chance after chance after chance. And um, it wasn't until about the sixth or seventh chance that I finally was going. Okay, so it looks like nobody's gonna take care of me but me. I might need mm. to do a little bit better job of that. Right. Um, and you know, maybe, just maybe, if I stop doing illegal things and drugs, they'll just stop arresting me. So Maybe. Maybe. It could be. I could Bruh. try. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, but then the struggles didn't end there um, because when you, you get cut off, um, even, even when the, those supports are there, and um, they're being used appropriately, and you know the individual is really trying and going through, um, you know, figuring out how to transition into adulthood, and those those supports get withdrawn, and you're just kind of dropped on your head, and it's figure it out, right? Right. That seems like I I would think that's like one of those. It's one of the scariest things I hear about foster care is like the aging out part, like when yeah. you get to the end, and it's like. There's not a great system in place to help these. Well, they're really still kids. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the reasons for the the high rate of foster care to human trafficking, foster care to prison. Um, those are pretty common things that happen um, in there. So I, you know, I spent quite a bit of time being homeless and, uh, trying to figure things out. Um, I was involved with the 12-step fellowship at the time. And there's a lot of parts of that that were really good for me. There were a lot of parts of that that was um, what I wanted. It, you know, they looked enough like the dysfunctional family I already had that I didn't <laughs> want anything to do with anymore. Um but without the drugs, right? So that made it like 100% better because we all know that, you know, the only thing that makes somebody an unsafe person is using drugs, right? That's it. Mm. Um, mm. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I got to say, I know people who have been 30, 30 years abstinence. I wouldn't trust them with my cats. So there's other markers there, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, and, and there was a lot, there was people who supported me. There were also people who preyed upon me. Um, and, uh, a lot of that message is that if there is a problem, you're the problem. So, you know, struggling with this homelessness, not knowing anything about trauma, not knowing anything about PTSD, not right. knowing that I can even have PTSD, um, cause I'm not a combat veteran. Um, you know, so it was not bad enough. That's always, that was a message from like super, super early on is that it's never bad enough to get any help with it. Right. And then, um, 
you know, why I was having such a hard time holding a job or why, uh, and, 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 and my belief was not because the expectations of the job were actually quite ridiculous, which when I look back on it, I'm like, I don't know how they kept any employees, honestly. Um, but, <laughs> it, but it wasn't, it wasn't that, you know, that the job was ridiculous. It's that I wasn't trying hard enough. I wasn't good enough. I was failing. And it was just a bit, it was, it was a lot. And I, I ended up getting, um, you know, more of that like rejection every time. Um, and then, you know, this idea that if you're in recovery, the only kind of love you can have is tough love, which isn't love at all. Um, mm. yeah, explain that. That tough love isn't love at all? No, no. I mean, it's a really profound statement, right? And you hear the term tough love all the time, right? Right, and yeah. And people, and, but I mean, yeah. You, you know what I mean? Um, sure. I, I can, just, I just want to, I just want to expand on that a little bit because sure. I do think it's really profound and like, Oh, well, thank you. I'm quite profound today. I you guess. are profound <laughs> today. <laughs> Let me drink some fancy tea on that. Ooh. Mm. Ha ha. Cheerio. Okay. So tough love isn't love. What I mean by that is, so well, I'm just going to come from the purview of uh, addiction on this. So we know a lot more about addiction now, biologically and medically. Um, we now know that the idea of being once an addict, always an addict is not true, or it doesn't matter what the substance is. You know, it, that's not true. We, we can unequivocally prove that that's not true. Um, and what we can also say is that substance use disorder, uh, a person who has a substance use disorder uses substances in response to pain, emotional, mental, spiritual, physical pain. Um, and yes, there's the physical addiction part of that that gets wrapped up in that. But there's a common understanding and there's a common belief in practice, even within the recovery community, is that when something hurts bad enough, somebody will stop using. Um, and that's loving them. Letting them hurt is just loving them or forcing more hurt on them to get to this point of like, if it hurts bad enough, now you'll take care of yourself, which if somebody is using substances in a response to pain and you inflict more pain upon them, they're going to use more substances. <laughs> um, that That's what's going to happen. So the, you're tough loving people to death. That's not love. Um, love doesn't harm, period. And there's a difference between feeling the emotion of love for somebody and then moving forward in loving action. And sometimes, I, and I really wish that I could take the word, if there's any word I could take out of addiction or anything that comes with it, it would be the word enabling. I, I hate that word. Um, because you're not enabling somebody's use. It's, it's very obvious that this could be the last time you ever talk to that loved one like this could be the last time and I know that when people are scared they want to try to move that person to do something less scary um but that could be the very irony of that is what pushes them right so especially when I talk to family members and even in myself I've lost a lot of people over the years, over the last 20 years of being in the recovery community. Um, actually, 
as I was driving here uh, in this neighborhood, this very neighborhood, I lost somebody um, here in Oshkosh who was a community pillar. Um, And you got to think about what, what do you want that last interaction to be with? Like if this could possibly be the last time you ever see this person, do you want it to be telling them that they're not good enough, telling them everything that they need to do and what they, how they need to be worthy enough to receive these services? Or do you just want them to know that you're there for them, that you love them and you don't know how to help and you don't know Mm. what they need? Um, Yes. That's and I, th- I think about that community pillar, right? Um, he was a community pillar in the, the, in the recovery community. He was a go-to guy, and he had struggled with his own mental health and um, substances on and off for years and years. And the belief was that this one pathway of recovery is the only way to do your recovery, and there is nothing else. And he, like, fully and totally believed that. And the pain and that humiliation of having to come back and saying that I had a reoccurrence of use um, as if that's not part of a recovery process, if that's not part of somebody who reacts to pain by using substances, right, um, that it was, was such a shameful thing that he did. He committed suicide rather than than face that. And that is not the only story. But this this particular person... He was a sponsor of many people. He was a part of um, the recovery community at the employment level and at the, um, you know, structural level of the way that we do things in the community. And, um, And I just have to wonder, like, if we knew then what we know now, could he still be here? Right. And he was an amazing drummer, too. Yeah. He was an amazing drummer. Yeah. He was an amazing drummer. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, kids, family. Me? Oh yeah, totally. Um, four of them. I wasn't going to have any. Remember I said we're Irish. So. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, I, my oldest daughter is uh, just about to be 15 Ooh. and, uh, I have a son who is 12, who is just caught up to her in height. So he now wears the same size shoes as me, which he's, he's just getting, getting big and then um i have twin eight-year-olds who were my smallest babies but they are my biggest kids they are both bigger than their brother and sister were at that age oh yeah and they love basketball Uh oh and their dad loves basketball yeah we love coming to see the herd games down here love the herd like we are big herd fans here yeah yeah we we like getting out there i'm not always real great in the loud crowds it's not it's not my i would much rather be running event than attending an event. That's that's how because because when you're running it, you can just be like, oh, I have this thing I have to do, and I can go hide where it's quiet for a minute, and then get back out there. Um, you can't do that as much when you're attending the event. Yeah, when you're just there. Well, yeah. when you're there cheering, and hopefully lots of people are cheering around you. So I don't know a lot about basketball. Yeah. So I know that when it goes through the hoop, like that's a, a time to cheer, but. <laughs> <Bruh>. <laughs> So no, so this is also a funny story. Okay, so I'm five foot ten. Okay, and I've been five foot ten since the eighth grade. All right, one summer I just shot up, and I was just taller than everybody until they, you know, caught up. Well, and some of them never did. But um, so people were always like, "You should play basketball. You should play basketball." 
And, and so one time I did, and I swear to God, they were, I had no idea what was going on like the entire time. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I didn't know where I was supposed to be. I swore everybody like had these secret meetings where they explained the drills at practice and like they ex- explained the plays because everybody else seemed to know what they were doing. I was, I was like, I went to every practice. I don't know how I missed this. I didn't know anything about it. Well, if you are a 5'10 young lady and you are fairly young, I think the job is to stand there in the center and just intimidate everyone. Oh my else. god, I was a gangly chicken at that time. I didn't know. No. 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 <laughs> All right, that's fantastic. All right. You ready to move on to the next segment? Yeah, for sure. All right, the next segment is called What in the World is Going On With? This is where you start with the phrase What in the World is Going On and then you tell us what's on your mind. So what in the world is going on with Fox City's roller derby? What? Bruh. Break yeah. it down. I'm, look, I'm super curious because like roller derby to me is fascinating. Oh, good. Wait, because we could do this whole podcast on just roller derby. Like oh. I, we totally could because I love roller derby. Um, I totally found a home there. I play roller derby with Fox City's roller derby. I'm siren number 33. So, and we have a bout coming up this coming Saturday, March 11th. Be there where I will find you. Just the, kidding. The fact that you called it a bout says a lot because you didn't say like, <laughs> it's not a game. It's, it's not a, a game. It's, it's a bout. <laughs> okay. Um, and y'all got to watch out for just the hip out there. Um, she can, ooh, you'll see her hits from way up in the stands. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It, it, honestly, one of my favorite things is even if I didn't see it happen, I know she hits somebody real hard because you can hear the crowd go, oh. <laughs> what made you, um, What? how did that come about? How did you find roller derby? Okay. So when it first came to the Fox Cities back in like 2008 or something, I was so excited, but I was like, pregnant out to here with my first kid so and then since it was my first kid I was like oh I'll just go do it after I don't do nothing after I was being a mom (laughs) I didn't know I didn't know what I was what I was in for sure thought I did though um so and then just you know it was just kind of a thing in the community that I knew was there and then the timing was never right but then the timing was right when the timing was right and um what was really great about it is like at the time you know, because I come from a little bit of a feisty background. Had a little bit of a had a little bit of an anger problem back in the day. Um, you? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, I had and that was always all about like me protecting myself. Right. Like all that trauma stuff, because a lot of the physical abuses, I, I, I would enter a room and be like sizing up the room by like who I thought I could handle and who I couldn't. If it was somebody I didn't think I could handle, I'd try to be their friend, <laughs> you uh, know, strategy, strategy, it's right? It's a good strategy. Um, but I had done a lot of healing. I didn't need that anymore. I didn't feel the impulses to want to hurt somebody else or the fear that somebody was going to hurt me first. Like I had done a lot of work. I didn't feel that. And then, um, it had been so long that I like started finding myself like kind of fearful to go out or whatever as I was like, I don't even know if I can handle myself anymore. And then I found roller derby and I was like, I'm fine. (laughs) I'm (laughs) I'm fine. I'm good. Yeah. Um, I, 
I absolutely love it. It looks like a group of women knocking each other down, but I promise you it's women building each other up. Um, it's the closest thing to actual loving tough love. Um, and anybody who wants to try it, we always want more people and we are mostly teachers. Like there's mostly teachers on our league. Oh, really? Yeah. We literally have a rocket scientist on our league. Um, she's a current bench coach. Um, she's professor Lawrence. Um, but before she became our bench coach, she was our highest scoring jammer at the age of 55. So I don't want to hear no excuses. Wow. (laughs) I ain't got time. I'm too old. No, none of that. No, none of that. And like my first season, cause I, I, was all, I always had wheels on my feet, skateboarding, BMX, all kinds of stuff, roller skating. I think I started the first time I – I remember being four and trying roller skating, and it was really, really hard. But by the end of it, like, I got it, and I was like, I'm so cool. <laughs> I am the coolest ever. I just remember feeling, like, so awesome. And then, you know, the jam skating stuff in the 90s when I could get away, when I wasn't, when I wasn't in trouble. Um so I, I starting out, I hadn't done any like hitting or anything like that, but um, I was pretty good on skates. And there was another person who came um, who just became one of my absolute greatest friends. And I'm so sad she had to move to Minnesota, but she couldn't even stand on the skates. And she came in on this the first season and they just taught her how to fall. They just taught her how to fall the entire time. And because of the way that we build each other up, we ended up starting our first game was at the same time. Wow. Yeah. So it's really, it's, I know we look scary and we do that on purpose, but we're just trying to intimidate the other team. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really not. It's like some of the most sweetest, most supportive um, people. And it really is a place for everybody. And, and I like roller derby because it is one of the few sports that nobody like separates the teams by gender. Mm. I can tell you, I, I could give you a list of names of dudes that could tell you that their testosterone was no advantage against our team. So <laughs> is that right? It is okay. right. Yeah. Um, because there's men's roller derby too, and they don't have as many teams. So we have to play together if they want to have games or have a season. So, so you got to play them. Yeah. That sounds fantastic. It is. Uh-oh. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I actually feel for him because I feel like there's probably a little extra effort put in, a little more oomph on that slam. Eh, sometimes. Oh, see. <laughs> Gosh, listeners, let me just say the smile says, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I may have had some coaches that I'm remembering when I'm playing against the guys. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. That is fair. Okay. Um. When's the next game, uh, or when's the next bout, and um, how do you how do you find it? Uh, how do we come see it? Um, so it's March 11th, um, this coming Saturday. It's going to be at the Oshkosh Arena. Um, we love that there, and you can get tickets at the door, or um, you can find them online at um, foxcitiesrollerderby.com, I believe is the correct. Oh boy, a Secretary of State's going to be really upset with me if I got that part wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and that's the best part is getting a name. Some of them are, and I have, and if anybody joins and they're having trouble with that, like I have a whole list of them. I think they're great. It's my favorite part. (laughs) Roller derby. Of getting your roller derby name? Yeah. What's your roller derby name? Mine is Siren. And I know a lot of people think that it's, uh, had got something to do with mermaids, but it's actually because I'm just, I'm really loud. (laughs) (laughs) Bruh. (laughs) 
I love it. Okay. I, roller yeah. derby. I'm in. Awesome. I need to, I need to come see one. And I've always March been curious 11th. about it. March 11th. Okay, cool. Um, my what in the world is going on with is what in the world is going on with John Jones, UFC heavyweight winning the championship on his first bout back after not competing for three years. That is amazing to me. I mean, some people just got it, you know, and moved up a weight class. So he was light heavyweight and no one ever beat him. Mm. And then he stepped away and he's been troubled with some stuff and, but he never got defeated, gave Mm -hmm. his belt up because he, he was going to, compete at heavyweight and he took several years to put on the weight the right way he didn't mm. just jump up and now you know last night was the first bout of him back after three years and usually you know they talk about there's ring rust and that kind of thing um and he choked him out in the first two minutes of the first round and Jeez. this is heavyweight so like that's that's crazy and um like, I like UFC. Like, I'm not some diehard UFC person, but for certain names, it's kind of like boxing. Like, mm-hmm. I would never watch boxing unless there were certain people. Like, Oh, no boxing? Really? Because I like boxing. Well, I, I used to like boxing during the Tyson years. Okay. Right. Cause those, but I will say this. I loved boxing during the Tyson years. I also hated boxing because Tyson cost me lots of money because I, and this is no lie. <laughs> there was one time me and my wife, we got the, we got the Tyson fight, right? It was a pay-per-view. We paid, we had all these people. We invited a ton of people over our house, you know, and our house isn't a big house, but we probably packed in at least like 20, 30, 40 people in our house, right? To watch mm-hmm. the Tyson fight. I get up. Right there, introducing Tyson, whatever. I run to the kitchen to like grab like a quick tray, a plate of like snacks. Right, mm-hmm. I come back, it's over. That was you missed it. I missed it. You missed the whole thing. Missed the whole thing because Tyson knocked him out in like the first thirty seconds. Oh jeez! And my soul hurt. And I had. And here's another thing: when you throw a big fight party like that, and the person knocks the person out and like the first it yeah. takes it it literally takes all the energy out because everybody yeah, was so like, oh, okay well oh, let me look at the time yeah <laughs> i guess i'm gonna be going now and it's like oh my god we just made all this food and like and i get it it was tyson but i'm i was planning for at least two rounds maybe three yeah and so i can't even think about going any rounds with tyson that make me scared bruh facts <laughs> just facts yeah, no. Uh, I'm making my friend though. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's right. That is, and I'm gonna have to agree with you. And you know what? Let's be honest. Mike seems like he'd be a really cool person to have as your friend. I'd kick Maybe. it with Mike. Maybe I don't know. That mm, he might he might be good at. He's not real great with women though. Fair. <laughs> Fair. So. I'm just going to, I'm, I'm fair. That's yeah. fair. I can't touch that one. Yeah. That's you fair. could probably be his friend. I'll just leave that there. Yeah. <laughs> fair. All right. So we're going to jump into the next segment. The next segment is word association. This is where I give you a word and you tell us what comes to mind. And we always start off with our favorite word, the unifying word, food. More. <laughs> 
Just more. More. Yeah. Uh, I am a foodie. I actually, I'm just about every restaurant I go to, I find the thing that I like. So I know what I'm ordering every time because nothing like rubs me the wrong way more than when I just paid for something that I don't like. And I'm like, this isn't, this isn't as good as it could be. Facts. I am that same way. Like it hurts my feelings. Like (laughs) to, to go somewhere and you, and it's not cheap. It's not nothing is cheap. So if I'm spending, you know, the, somewhere between fifteen to thirty dollars on a plate, mm-hmm. and then I get it, and it's not, yep, I'm my soul hurts because I'm thinking right, and I don't want to. I blame myself because I'm thinking I should have just got what I what it's I. Not I on you. You got to be more gentle with yourself, man. Yeah, it's well, not on you. <laughs> well, I, I say that because I usually, I do exactly what you do. I find my go-tos and I get my go-tos, but every once in a while you feel just a little experimental and you're like, okay, this place has never served me anything bad and I'm going to mm-hmm. try something new today. And here's the special, they got a special on the chalkboard. And let, me, let me try that. Let me try some of that. And then I try it and, and I'm like. And it's a disappointment. Right. You want to write them like a report card and send it to their mom. I just. What it really makes me want to do is go and order what I really should have ordered in the first place, but then I'm too cheap to <laughs> yes. to to actually spend the money Bruh. on that other plate. I'm just that's just where I'm at. I just suffer through it. Yeah, I do. I um one of my favorite dishes ever is Thai green curry. Mm. Um gotta give a shout out to Basil's and Appleton on that oh, one. Oh yes, my gosh. Yes. Yeah, and Fried calamari. And I'm not talking like the, the fish sticks kind. Like the real. I know. I'm eating an octopus and people are freak, get freaked out by that. I think it's kind of cool. It makes me think of like all the sci-fi foods. <laughs> in all the movies. Like I'm eating an alien. It's fun. And weird. I know. But yeah. Food. More of it. I said, that's the other thing is like especially when I order something that I'm like this is a little treat for me. Because I've behaved myself. <laughs> I've been been eating my veggies and my fruits and my proteins and, you know, like cutting out all the sugars and stuff that I know are not good for me and my heart health and all that. But I'm going to have this little treat and then it's not a treat at all. I get resentful. It's personal. It's personal. It's like they did it on purpose. I I, I know. Probably not. Probably not. But you know, the universe does play tricks on us every once in a while. It does. It does. Yeah, there's nothing worse than that. <laughs> Cocktail or beer? Uh, no, thanks. All right. What is our favorite beverage? What do we like to do? Well, I am a friend of a lot of local coffee shops, so they're really going to not like me for this. But my favorite is the Jade Citrus Mint Tea that Starbucks has. No honey, no nothing in it. It's just the plain stuff. Although Brood Awakenings does have a pretty good green tea, too. And they used to have a passion fruit green tea that was my absolute favorite, but they got rid of it, man. Yeah? They got rid of it. I don't know why, but it was my favorite. I'm a big tea drinker. Yeah. I can't do coffee, man. It gets to my stomach and the jitters. I'm at that point in life where the jitters. I can't do coffee because that caffeine hits different than tea caffeine. To me, Mm -hmm. tea caffeine is really clean. Um and so I still get the perk of caffeine, mm-hmm. but it's not as harsh as coffee caffeine, which makes me literally have shaky hands. That and look, I was in the 12-step recovery community for 17 years. I have tried 
to like coffee. I have tried really hard. I just don't like it. Yep. I just don't like it. And the amount of sugar and cream I have to put in it, I might as well get a soda. Well, then it's not Ugh. coffee. Right. right. It's it, not. It's yeah. not coffee then. That's cocoa. <laughs> exactly. It's cocoa. That's, it is. Um, my husband, though, is huge, huge coffee drinker. And he's like snobberific about it. Oh, I like those people, too, though. Yeah. And he like almost every vacation that we've gone on some in some way centers around seeing a coffee farm or getting the best coffee in the area or like it centers around that yeah i understand it like i'm not gonna lie like it feels weird until you figure out what you like and but once you figure out what you like there's nothing that makes me smile more than to walk into starbucks and be like can i get a white grande mocha with a triple shot uh no whip and I am bougie about it. And I enjoy it. I, that's too many things for me to remember. I can't even remember what they call the different sizes at Starbucks. And I just kind of refuse to do that. I'm like, it's 20 ounces. That's 20 ounces everywhere. We're, we're, we're not. No, no new coffee dialects. I'm just, this is what I can remember. I want 20 ounces. That's oh, no. what I want. There's nothing. If I can do the grande or the vente, I'm, I'm all about it. I'm in. When I'm in there, I'm going to be amongst the other Starbucks people, oh. even though I do like, um, I actually don't do Starbucks that much. I do a lot of small coffee shops now too. Well, you know, yeah, up and down College Ave. Yeah, I also really like New Moon. Oh. I like they have a dill wrap that's really good. Man, now I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I might be going there after this if they're open. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if they're open on Sundays. We'll 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 check that out. Um, concert. Oh, so my most fun concert that I've just been to recently was in Chicago, and it was to see um, Flogging Molly and the Interrupters, two of my favorite bands, man. Um, and I just, like, especially the album Fight the Good Fight by the Interrupters just really speaks to me. Um, yeah. And, oh, and I was so, like... Oh, I almost got teary-eyed at the last bout when our introduction song, they, the, my team also picked that at the last Roller Derby bout to be their introduction song, which is uh, Fight Like a Title Holder. And like that song and that team have gotten me through some really, really tough times. And it was just, it was really cool. It meant a lot to me. There you go. All right. Oh, but the one other band that I saw years ago that I, it's like still just sticks in my mind um, was Il Nino and Soulfly. Yeah. Where'd you see them? Um, that was in Milwaukee at the, I think it was the Eagles ballroom. Oh, I haven't been to the Eagles in ages. I know, right? But, it but was in the before times, so. <laughs> Is, are, are we saying pre-COVID? Yeah. Yeah. Way pre-COVID. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. I did, it is funny because that is how I decipher time now. Uh, you know, pre-COVID, post-COVID. Mm-hmm. And that Thanos snap in between when people are like, it's been three years since we saw each other. Wait, has it? Oh, my God. Yeah, it has. Yeah. No, it, it it's really we're at that point. Like uh, and that's why it matters, because it, you do have to think about it. Like and I was just having this conversation with someone earlier this week and I was like, you know, 2020 was when we all got sent home. And that's been three years. I know. It's still wild to me. Right. And I mean, literally, that was 2020 March. Mm -hmm. So like it's legit three years. I'm also kind of like, it's 2023. Where's my flying car? Like, we're behind on that. Um, I've got an episode on that. 
Sweet, really? Uh, listen, Ooh. listen to the episode from um, Dick um, Kempinski from uh, EAA. There is he talks nice. about flying cars. Well, no, I'm scared because then I would have to actually fly one. If the uh, called out. <laughs> so you just thought you just thought I just thought I could complain about something and get away with it. Yeah. Yeah, no. The cash, we talk about everything. Oh man. Shop local. Shop local. Um Satori Imports is always fun to like go in there and look around at what they have. Um I hadn't been there for a I haven't God, been there in a so long time. Long, I know. Um Gosh, I'm drawing blanks right now, and I know that there's places that I um, that I do pur- purposefully do. Well, does do rummage sales count? Oh my, <laughs> that is the ultimate shop local. I and I am a rummage aholic. Oh my gosh, me too. Yeah, I am. Um, I, yeah, I I I am such a miser when it comes to like you know buying furniture or um like picture frames or something like that and then um you know there's a whole environmental factor with it too um but then oh and also with my kids clothes because they there's four of them and they just grow so fast and then they beat the crap out of them and rev them up and stain them i'm not gonna buy brand new stuff unless there's like a special occasion or it's the beginning of the school year right so but what changed my whole perspective on yard sales and rummage sales and thrift stores too was my first break room experience. Like the break, there's like the breaking point in Appleton and uh, you just get to come in and you just get to break stuff. You just get to smash stuff. Like I, as a juvenile, I used to do that anyway, except for now it's a business model. (laughs) So I'm not getting any fines anymore. (laughs) Right. You just pay the 50 bucks and they let you bring your own stuff in too. So then I was like, now there's this whole world of like, oh, I really want to smash that. So I'm going to buy it and bring it to the break room. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so you go to, like, the thrift store, buy it, and mm-hmm. you're like, yep, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to smash that. Yeah. Yeah. That is fantastic. Yeah, they got all kinds of stuff there. And they take junk, and they'll come and pick it up, too. So if you have something like an old flat screen, not tube TVs, they can't take those, but, like, old doors or chairs or toaster oven or radio or something like that, they'll they'll come and get it. So That's that that is so fantastic on so many levels um i don't know i'm i'm fascinated by break rooms but i'm also a little scared like i'm not sure if i'm the man to go in there and just start well, they got a range paint room too so you don't have to like smash things you can go in there and like whip paint at the wall and stuff too well no i would just think i might like it a little too much and it might become part of oh. the monthly budget <laughs> i mean it has for me so <laughs> So, okay, I like that, and I do love a good rummage sale. And rummage season is um, around the corner here. I'm getting pretty excited about it. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, we're the type of rummagers, I and mean, we did this for a number of years that would go literally to every rummage sale in the city of Oshkosh. Every single oh, one. When they have it all listed, and right. then you you plan out your route. Yeah, you make sure you got cash. Yeah, and you're gonna find the ones where you can haggle. Yep. Oh, I don't. I don't like rummage sale haggling. No? Uh, I it just depends. It depends because there are certain here's the key to me, there's two types of rummage sales. Mm-hmm. There's the rummage sale where the person's trying to make money mm-hmm. 
those I haggle at because right. sometimes they're charging more than it costs at Target to buy the item. Right. Or they bought the item from a really expensive place. And so what they're charging, they're thinking they're giving a discount, but like you could go to Walmart and buy it for that. Right. Yeah. The other type of rummage sale, which is my favorite rummage sale, which is the person who's like, this needs to get out of my house. Yeah. This needs to get out of my house. And then the favorite rummage sale of all rummage sales is the mom who's, who's, kids went to college and they Mm -hmm. left like all their video game stuff and all that stuff. And they're like, that is not your room anymore. This, if you you (laughs) don't come and get it, I'm putting it in the room and they do. And it's dirt cheap. Mm -hmm. And there I'm looking at wonderful collectible things of Mm -hmm. video games. And they're just like, yeah. And if you want more, there's some more in it. Just take the box. Yes. Just, just take the box. Yeah. Give me $5 for the box for real. Okay. See, okay, so I also have this problem, like, everywhere I go, like, I meet somebody, and I'm like, hey, how you going? How's it going? And then, like, by the end of it, I'm like, well, good luck on your healing journey. Hopefully your mom pulls through. Like, people just tend to kind of dump wherever I go, and I end up finding out that they... When we go to rummage sales, I end up finding out, like, the story behind the whole thing. Oh. And then a lot of times they want to charge for the emotional attachment to it. Right. And I'm like... I feel you, but nope. My pocketbook doesn't. <laughs> Correct. I will. I will sit here and listen to you, though. In exchange, does that work? No. And then I don't know. Sometimes they're. Sometimes when you do that, they're just like, you know what? Just for you. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Well, that's not what I meant to do. But thanks. Yeah. But yeah, I um. That's why I'm always so very careful about like. I don't. I don't. I don't even know how it happens. I, I don't even know how it happens, but yeah, I'm really careful about like starting to interact with somebody I don't know at all because I don't know, I don't know what it is, but yeah, I, I end up getting their whole life story and all the things that they're struggling with and I can't help myself, but to be like, oh, I'm really so sorry to hear you're going through that. Like, and, and doing, you know, and doing the whole thing of just being a support. Cause that's what I do. Right. <laughs> um, that actually just happened. I just went on vacation It happened with my Uber driver too. What? Bruh. Yeah. I don't I don't know about that. I don't know if I'm gonna have a quick counseling session with my Uber driver. I think I'm trying to be like, hey, can we uh you know? Well, it always happens though whenever they're like because you know, people ask questions like, What do you do? And you can say like, Oh yeah, I work for the city. Pretty oh yeah, that's cool. But as soon as I'm like, Well, we do things around addiction and policy and, uh, and support, and then boom, everybody just whoosh, everybody yeah, unloads everybody knows somebody or everybody's been through that or they work in the same field as this um driver did for 35 years and yeah then it just ends up being a whole session <laughs> <laughs> i could see that and actually i don't know that's kind of cool too though like i don't yeah i don't mind cool. um but like so just so you know if i ever like i'm shutting off my phone it's <laughs> because <laughs> I need to recoup. I'm really, really shutting it off. I hear you. Yeah. Justice. Oh, boy. There's a whole lot of words that come to mind with that. Um, Broken, I guess, would be my first response to that. Um, There's a reason that we don't call it a criminal justice system anymore. It's a criminal legal system um, because it always seems like the ones who – should be held accountable, don't get held accountable. And the ones who didn't do, um, 
And then, gosh, there's so many intersections to talk about when you talk about that word justice. Um, that's like a whole can of worms. I mean, we're talking about, you can't talk about that without talking about sexism, misogyny, homophobia, you know, racial inequity. There's, there's so many things facts with that. Um, I mean, even just so in, in my particular lane of, you know, family recovery and I'm dealing with child welfare, you know, in the state of Wisconsin, um, according to our last census, we are 83% white and only 6% black. And throughout the state of Wisconsin and the demographics of kids that are removed, only 44% of kids are white and 36% of kids removed are black. So there's, yeah, I guess the first word I think of when I think of justice is injustice. And um, I've had to kind of give up justice being a marker of success because if I measure my success on seeing justice being had, um, I'm going to get defeated real quick and I'm going to get worn out and I'm going to quit. And the system is designed to wear you out and make you quit. And I, I'm a fighter, so I'm not going anywhere. Um, you know, I just, I'll just keep, I'll keep riding the waves and, and be in the support and in holding up people who are doing really, really good work and hold space for them too. Cause our our justice workers need support too. And Facts. Self care too. And in a place to fall apart too. So community. Complicated. <laughs> um community is necessary. It's necessary for healing. Um, you know, personally, that was always a word, a word that I didn't want anything to do with for a lot of years. Um, cause community was never exactly a very safe place for me. Um, and communities would tend to decide things about me without me. And it never really turned out very well for me. And they didn't even know, you know, basically that I exist. And, um, I didn't even realize, and, and, and then the group of people that I had as a community would have never called themselves a community either because we were all the outcasts and the black sheep, right? But it was a community. So it's been complex for me. So, so here's one thing. Um, I know sometimes I like push against 12-step ideals um, because there's you know, that's one pathway of recovery that does work for some people, um, but it doesn't work for a whole lot more. Um, but one thing that I did learn from doing service work for all those years while I was still a part of the 12-step um, community was do not show up and complain about a problem unless you are ready to roll up your sleeves. Facts. Bruh. And that is something that I still find really, really valuable. Um, and most of the time I won't speak on anything unless I either have a solution in mind or um, I am willing to put energy into something. Um, But through doing this work, I have found that there are a lot of things that affect the work that I do. And I don't necessarily know what the solution is to those things, but it still needs to be talked about because if I don't bring it up, maybe the person that will end up having the solution never thinks of it. Right. But it's just bringing it up in a way that is not, you know, telling somebody else that they're not doing 
enough because I think everybody, I don't care what the field is. I don't care if you're a waitress, you're being told you're not doing enough. And we don't, nobody needs that. Nobody needs that. Okay. You ready for your next segment? Yes. Next segment is Kosh Hidden Gems. This is your opportunity to share some hidden gem. It could be something everybody knows and maybe they don't know a, a little piece of it. Um, and uh, it's not necessarily, doesn't have to be the Kosh. It can be the Fox Cities. Um, what's your hidden gem? Jexies. Definitely Jexies restaurant. Sinkakana now. It was a little hole in the wall, like down the street from my house. And we used to love going there for Sunday brunch. Um, remember how we talked about, like, I don't want to try something new because it might not be what I like. I, I have tried everything on their menu. Everything is great. Bruh. Every, what? Every time. Every time. There's not been anything. Anything. And they do everything. They do everything from, like, breakfast to Italian food and fajitas. And it's really, really good. And it's a local family-owned um, business, too. So, yeah. Jexies and Kakana. That's my, I, I almost didn't say it because I kind of just wanted to keep it for myself. <laughs> Don't be like that. Don't be like that. Only with really special things, though. So, but yeah, no, I, you got to go and support them so that they can still be there because I can't, I can't eat all of their food to support their business model. But yeah, definitely Jexies and Kakana. Is it, I want to make sure I'm hearing it right. Wait, how do you spell it? Um, so I'm probably pronouncing it wrong um, because it's a, a Hispanic family that owns it. Okay. So I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. It's J-E-X-I. And mm-hmm. I only slightly know my Spanish alphabet phonetics, and I tried pronouncing it with that. And I probably also did it wrong then, too. <laughs> but, um, yeah, J-E-X-I. Go, go eat their food. It's amazing. Okay. Got it. What's the cash need? More collaboration, I think. What do you mean? Um, so there's a lot of resources for a lot of people um, at many different intersections. And since, you know, addiction doesn't discriminate, like you, you end up learning a lot about a lot of different places and uh, social uh, levels and um, legislative levels um, right down to the practices and the people and the community, right? Um, And sometimes there is a, like a competitive mindset, like, like we're going to have to compete for people to serve. But what every single one of those people will tell you is that they do not have enough as an organization to meet the needs of the demand of the community of, of the support. Right. Right. It's never, there's never enough money. There's never enough volunteers. There's yeah. just never it's right. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's never enough money. There's never enough staff. There's never enough training. Um, and, but then when something new comes along, we we're like, no, 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 not you, not that. Um, and rather than, you know, kind of collaborate on that, sometimes they do. Um, I know that, uh, like a Pricity became a Pricity because of the collaboration of a few different organizations. Um, but, uh, even within like 
county systems and state systems and then and then once you really once you go real high up to to the federal systems and the competition gets even more like ridiculous i'm kind of like look i've said this before and i'll say it again if we ever 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 get to the point where there are so few people <laughs> afflicted by poverty or addiction um, or, or racial inequity that, that led to addiction or led to poverty, if we ever run out of people so that there's not enough to serve with all of these organizations, y'all can have it. You can, you can have it. I'll go do landscaping. I will dig in the dirt and plant pretty flowers. I have, I have no need to do this, I, but I do see that the community needs it. And I have the connections and I have the resources and I have the ability to do something. Um, and I don't think I could live with myself if I, you know, knowing those things. And then I just didn't. Um, I don't think I could do that, at least not at this point in my life. Um, so I just think we could do a lot more collaboration, a lot more. I mean, because especially, you know, with certain organizations that have, the, the largest amount of money that's dumped into them or they have a lot of the, the resources, um, they're going to end up getting referrals from other organizations anyway. Um, so that really benefits everybody, um, especially the people that we're serving, like the, the territorial stuff. And, and I mean, honestly, people who are overdosing and dying on their living room floors don't care if we're friends or not. Um, and that's really what it comes down to is uh, making sure, one that people have the option, um, two, that they have a pathway that works for them, uh, because dead people and ostracized people don't recover period. They just don't. Right. Um, so making sure that we have those measures in place and, and then somewhere to send them afterwards, like awesome. You know, we do something on the good Samaritan law so that there's not a consequence if somebody is calling nine one one. Uh, over an overdose right like that they can do that's awesome like great we saved a life now what what do they do now it's it's not like you know you have I mean for some people sure an overdose is a wake up and and they're able to go through their process the way they need to go through it whether it's through harm reduction means or you know medicated assisted treatment or um, maybe they really want to just go through that horrific detox and come out on the other side, you know, that way, or maybe they need more mental health and substance use. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of barriers between mental health and, um, the substance use lanes. Um, but there is so much overlap and sometimes, there's a belief that only mental health is the reason that people are using in the first place or um, they're having mental health issues because they're using. Right. And That's true. Uh, both are true. That. Both are true. Neither are an ultimate truth, though. Right. right? There's a lot of overlap, and, and people should have their, their mental health um, medications available to them and still be able to get addiction recovery support and assistance or, or in treatment um, if that's the route that they want to go. And sometimes it doesn't work out that way, much to the detriment of the people who are just trying to get help and trying to get out of the spot that none of us want them to be in anyway. That makes sense. And it sounds complex. It is. It is really complex. I mean, because then, you know, you're talking about 
bureaucratic systems and you're talking about systems that were designed to keep certain people from getting access to certain things and even even the ones who can get access don't get the greatest access and then even the people within the systems that want to make those changes can't because of the structure that is in place you always have to go mm. up higher you always right. have to go up higher um which you know i when i have a goal in mind i get pretty singular minded so <laughs> if i have to go if i have to go all the way to the top to pull it back down that's that's what i do um one of the examples of that was um, Act 122 in Wisconsin. And um, again, this was a situation where, one, I think certified peer specialists were being given a lot of misinformation. And at the same time, I think there were some people who were taking the recovery coach name um, and not using it appropriately and um, using it as a like a coaxing, a coaxing or a, a pushing or um, you know pushing somebody towards a specific treatment or or a specific um, pathway of recovery, which is what the certified peer specialists have a problem with. Which hey, I agree with you. That's that's not how we should be treating people. We have like years and years of evidence to show that that doesn't work. Um, but Act One Twenty Two was passed so that um, recovery coaches can be Medicaid reimbursable because much of the time the people that need, um, you know, our help and services, they don't have any money. They don't have any insurance. Right. Um, and I, as much as I, you know, love what I do, um, my mortgage isn't paid on feel goods. So, um, I still need to do, you know, I still need to be, I still need to make a salary at least. And, and that does make it more complicated. Um, and uh, when that was passed, it, it um, bumped up a, against a whole bunch of Medicaid rules. And then even the individuals who are at the single state authority level really want to see this happen. They want to be able to see, um, you know, we need both. We need more of both, um, you know, both certified peer specialists and recovery coaches, Um but to, to make it happen, they had to, you know, deal with CMS, who is beholden to nobody, and it's federal, so th there was, like, there's no, it's not an elected position, so it's not like you can apply any pressure or anything like that, so that was something that kind of held things up for a while, but I'm really glad to say that I have seen um, some really good efforts there um, in uh, finding a way to be really creative with doing that. Um, the Wisconsin way, because, you know, even though other states have done it and the, there's a model out there to do it, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We're going to reinvent the wheel because we're Wisconsin. So, um, but I'm glad to see that moving at least. Um, so having the, the different collaboration really does help. And I like my role the most because I get to see things both from the micro and the macro view I get to see what people really think because a lot of times there's a divide and there becomes this like paranoia that, you know, we kind of make up a boogeyman in our minds of either who's on the street using or who's, right. you know, up there making all of these decisions about laws and whatnot. And so, so being in the position that I'm in, I have the privilege of being able to like see the people across the table who are just humans um, just all 
trying to figure out what they're doing um, and where they are in life and that they genuinely do want to help. And sometimes people genuinely want to help and they got no idea, man. <laughs> they think right. they do. Yeah. Um, but I know that if I come in there and I'm, you know, telling them how wrong they're doing things, you know, you tend to get shut out. But, um, you know, when I take a minute to like really listen to like what their intention is at least, and then having that perspective of saying like, okay, I hear you, but this is how it plays out on the street. Um, I find that to be really effective. And especially when I stepped in, because I've been um, in one form or another doing some kind of peer work for about the last 20 years. And for about the last five, I have focused specifically on um, families involved in child welfare and that whole thing. Um, Because it's a very different system. Um, And the people that are involved in it genuinely want to help. They genuinely believe that they're helping. And sometimes that's dangerous when they won't hear something else. Um, And I I had even been almost convinced that things had changed since I had been through it. And some faces changed and some attitudes have changed and having more information definitely changed. But seeing the human experience of what their bodies are going through is no different than what I went through it. Like we can, we can call it trauma informed care. We can call it partnering with families, which you can't really call it with partnering with families anyway, because there's an inherent power dynamic. That's not a partner, but, um, in even, even in situations where removal is absolutely necessary, which are very rare occasions that I would agree that that is necessary. Um, it doesn't matter that physical feeling that they're having in that body, in their body, their body is reacting as though their child is being kidnapped and held for ransom, even if, and, and that child is having that experience too. Right. Um, you know, it's, I, when I talk to people a lot, I'm like, well, if you're walking down the street and a van pulls up and they grab your kid and they, they throw them in there and you're not going to look at the plates and go, Oh, they're government plates. It's fine. This is going to be fine. And, you know, and the kid's going to be like, oh, these are people from the government. Yeah, okay, I'm totally safe. I'm way better off than I was with my mom a minute ago. Yeah, that's that's not how they're going to react, right? Right. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm, I literally was envisioning that when you said it, and I was just like, yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah. So, the you know, I think there's there's a lot of things. Like, there's a lot of things that people don't know. Like, people don't know that just because child welfare didn't remove a child, it doesn't mean that they're doing nothing. They're not doing anything. They know, they have the benefit of knowing and um, that the being removed is the trauma that the kids remember. Um, They know that going into foster care increases their rates of using drugs and alcohol by 63%. They know that after a 10-year study, um, on our own systems, 93% of kids that are in juvenile justice had one or more foster placements. They know that this is not what's best for kids and they don't want to pull that trigger unless it is absolutely necessary because while we may disagree on some practices and we may disagree on some policies and we come from different backgrounds of experience with it, I do believe that the people who are in child welfare genuinely want to help we just need to have better discussions about what that means. Right. I could see that. Yeah. Because there's not a one size fits all. Right. And and to the people who are involved with child welfare, like they don't care. 
And I don't think they, they should have to care that their social worker genuinely wants to help, right? Like they're in this disempowered situation. They don't have, you know, they don't have the benefit of being self-directed at that point. And um, a lot of times there's almost, it's almost like a language barrier between, you know, the professionals and the, the people who don't come from that world. Right. So um, having somebody there that can kind of translate, if you will, um, just that better communication, you know, brings better collaboration to work towards a goal that we all want, which is a better future for our kids. Everybody wants that. Facts. So. Okay. I think we're going to take a commercial break. Did you know there are children in the Fox Valley in need of hearing aids, but their parents struggle to provide them because of lack of insurance or high copays? I am Juliette Sturkins, audiologist and board member of Here in the Fox Cities, and proud that this small local nonprofit organization has helped fund hearing aids for some 30 kids. Your donation would help more children hear Visit hereinthefoxcities.org to learn more and to see their smiles. Every child deserves to hear. All right, we're back. And our next segment is, and this is a new segment we've been testing out now, um, story time. And so this is an opportunity to share a memorable narrative with us. It could be more than one if you like. (laughs) I got a couple. Um, Especially um, on the topics uh, that we're we're touching on here in the world that I work in. So, um, you know, back to that point of uh, struggling when uh, being dumped on your head as a a foster kid. And uh, I had... I had gotten an apartment. I had finally gotten an apartment and I had gotten a job um, at Lutheran Social Services doing caretaking um, for CBRF. Third shift though, Um, which it wasn't too bad. I've always been a night person. It only got rough when, you know, you don't see the sun for a few weeks in uh, the end of the year. But um, I did get to see the Northern Lights a lot, which I thought was super cool. But I remember struggling really hard to be able to keep this job and that I was like never living up to my boss's expectations and, um, and the computer communication wasn't great between coworkers, but I was like hanging on because I needed this paycheck and I just really wanted to prove to myself that I could like keep my phone on. And, um, I was trying to juggle the bills so that I could pay off fines to get my driver's license reinstated. Cause I was driving to work with all the driver's license and I had a I had a a big old I mean I had to get there you know I had a big old um, 1981 Pontiac Grand Prix oh I remember those her name was Ellie and uh, (laughs) and well actually I bought that car because um, 1981 I think was one of the last years that the engine was still carbureted so I knew how to work on it myself if it broke uh, because a lot of the newer cars with all the computerized stuff I didn't know any of that stuff so um, I was like trying to keep costs down by putting the labor in myself. Although eventually the repairs ended up outweighing the value that I couldn't even put the time in. Um, it did break down a lot. And then I, um, I would have to ride the bus and, um, I, I could only, 
a lot of times I would need to rely on um, the Salvation Army food bank uh, to eat. And I can remember, and I know this is going to make some people cringe, but I can remember sometimes like my dinner was a can of sauerkraut. <laughs> and um, I, I was walking home from the bus stop, which wasn't very far, with all of my paper bags. And um, I was kind of feeling sorry for myself because it had been a rough week and I hadn't slept. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Everybody keeps telling me if I do all the right things, like things are going to get easier. Like, when is it going to get easier? Like, when is it going to get right? When am I going to not feel like I'm struggling all the time? Right. Right. And it was mostly canned food. So it was heavy. And I'm walking and I'm walking and the one bag just like rips right open. And I'm by myself on the street and I just say out loud. I'm like, I'm a star in a lifetime movie. I, this is my life is I'm in a lifetime movie. That's what this is right now. And I don't even remember how I got all the rest of the cans back up to my house, but it was just, so I remember that being like a pinnacle of struggle, um, just to keep the status quo. And honestly, it wasn't, it wasn't that long after that, that I ended up losing that job and then losing that apartment. It was back to the homelessness and I had to start all over again. I ended up in a relationship with a guy who was domestically abusive out of desperation um yeah that was that was such a struggle um period of time in my life and I really blame myself for it so then like fast forward to uh a year and a half later um I I I had finally gotten signed up to go to school go back to school because I was 22 and I was like okay I ran far and fast from all of anything that even smells like an institution but uh once again I'm going huh might might need to do something with my life here because I sure can't seem to hack it in the the you know the uh service industry here um and uh then the week before I was supposed to start classes um I had a, a breakup with somebody who I actually cared a lot about and who I, we, we had gotten an apartment together too. So I was going to, I was going to end up being homeless for a little bit. And I remember thinking, Oh my God, how am I going to do this? Because, you know, I had always fallen apart. I would always fall apart. I'm like, how am I going to do this? I'm supposed to go to school and all my heart is broken. And I'm going to have to find out how am I going to, how am I going to do, how am I going to do this? And I can't tell you what was different, but I just heard this voice in my head that said, no, F that. This is, no, you worked really hard for this. You're going to go do this and you're going to do it well. And I did. And having that, I don't know why. I mean, I walked 20 minutes in each direction to get to school with all my books. I walked to my job at Subway that I went and got. Nice. (laughs) Most fun job I've ever had, by the way, at Subway. I was so like, I was not going to work at fast food most fun job I ever had. Um, and then, yeah, once I was able to like hold my own apartment in for a year by myself, um, and you know, I spent a lot of time as a teenager incarcerated. So I was out and I was getting involved in ballroom dancing. I was competing. I was doing a, um, apprenticeship for tattooing, um, which ended up bringing me a little bit of extra cash on the side too. Um, And, uh, just having that time to show me that I could rely, like I could be a reliable person for me because at this point, nobody else was going to be, um, 
And, um, that, that was really amazing. And that was part of what like sent me, cause I wasn't going to do none of this, by the way, I, w- I was going for qualitative and quantitative research, um, for abnormal psychology. I wanted to do profiling. I didn't want, <laughs> I didn't want to do okay. none of this, like peopling thing or right. networking, being part of a community thing or <laughs> talking to people in government. No, Not thank about you. Any of that no, life, huh? uh-uh, no, I wanted nothing to do with any of that. I wasn't going to have kids. I wasn't getting married. I was just going to do that. And then my husband and I reconnected and well, all that changed, but those are some pretty pivotal things, some pretty pivotal points in my life that I remember when I'm doing the work that I do. Hmm. I felt that. Like I felt, felt that. Aww. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing the story. And now it is time for... for topic of the week i know i love the introduction it gets me it kicked is. every time i'm like oh shit we're on cnn oh sorry <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're gonna be okay <laughs> okay so all right so it's time for topic of the week and the topic of the week is chosen by our guest so patty what is our topic of the week uh, i'm talking about addiction policy okay addiction policy um let's go okay so most of the time we treat addiction as a criminal um, disease. We legislate it that way. We sentence it that way, um, despite having mountains and mountains of evidence to show that what works when we really, really want to lower the use of drugs is we have to remove the market, which is a much bigger conversation. Um, and when we treat it like a public health issue, that, I mean, worldwide, across countries, co- across social classes, um, races, when we treat it like a public health issue, that's really what um, diminishes the use of drugs. And that's a much bigger conversation. Um, So I know that this might make me a little bit unpopular, but I'm all for the decriminalization of the use of drugs. So um, my reason for that is we would not criminalize any other medical condition. I mean, we have in the past. We definitely have. We used to criminalize Down syndrome. We criminalized, um, you know, uh, schizophrenia. Uh, I mean, the mental health community can go on and on and on about the way that they were treated as well. Hmm. Um, So I know a lot of people think about this as this is, it was a choice even if even once, you know, you got to the spot where you couldn't stop and you couldn't live any other way, that it was a choice to start in the first place. And you know what? That maybe was true at one time about maybe 50 or so years ago. Um, but I can't. So like I said, I've been doing this for 20 years and I cannot think I can't remember the last time somebody came across my desk that didn't have their doorway and their pathway into addiction through some kind of injury or surgery or, um, or having some kind of chronic pain mm. that they were not getting their needs met on and were overprescribed. 
um, somebody who was just on my caseload right now who, who ended up in the position that he was in. It all started because he broke his foot and mm. the rest was history from there. Um, I don't think we've done a good enough job educating the public and just how much damage the Sackler family has done to communities all over the place. Um, they were not honest about, and this is one of the reasons for the lawsuit in the first place is they were not honest with care providers about how addictive their medicine was. They set up an entire system based on the pain rating of the patients um, within hospitals. So hospitals could be rated lower if they were not prescribing medications more. Doctors were receiving kickbacks for prescribing certain amounts from the pharmaceutical company. So this idea that, you know, this addiction is a choice thing, this needs to go away. We, we can't keep blaming individuality um, or there's something wrong with the individual for this anymore because this wasn't caused by individual anything. Um, when we're talking about the opioid epidemic, this was something that was done systemically by people with a lot of money and power and influence. Um, and it took a lot. It took a lot to get that even brought to the surface. So when we arrest people for using there's a cycle that they end up getting trapped in because now you have that on your record and right. that keeps you from getting housing. It keeps you from getting jobs. And one of the requirements is to keep your employment. So there's very few jobs that you can go into. I mean, unless you want to work in this field, which is not for everybody. And I can tell you that there are a number of people in the recovery community, especially if we're talking about the organization, uh, young people in recovery. As soon as you put that out there, as soon as you're known for that, um, everybody gets to know like your personal medical background. Because now you've identified yourself as a person with a substance use disorder. And when you're working in the addiction field, you don't really get to get out. You don't really get to get out anywhere um, outside of that. It's very difficult. I mean, sure, there are a few that can have the social mobility in and out, but, um, you know, resumes get picked over. You get passed over. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it feels really like... So one of the things about people who are in the recovery community, um, especially if there's a long history of trauma and that's the the reason for the use in the first place, is getting a lot of that affirmation and attention by sharing your story feels really good and it feels great to get it off your chest and it feels so good to be getting all of this affirmation and attention and really feeling that your life has changed and that you're cared about, um, especially to somebody who's a trauma survivor. Like that's a big deal to, to know that there are people that care about you and they, you know, but what they don't realize then is that puts them in there forever. I was, so I, I got stuck at a place and I'm, and so I was thinking about it. When you apply to other jobs and you've done work like this or, mm-hmm. or are associated with work like that, do you think that other employers just have the assumption that because you work in the field that you have lived experience and you've you had addiction, uh, addiction issues like when they're combing through? Do you, do you think that happens? Do you think there's... Oh, I know it does. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, especially a lot of time, you know, because 
especially if you're talking about going into something like an emergency spot responder situation when you're talking about being an EMT or a nurse, um, that's something that ends up getting talked about like at length. Um, what was your role? And in ways, other other positions maybe wouldn't. Um, and then, you know, we're constantly told over and over and over and over again, you have to be honest, 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 to be honest. Um, you know, but there's just those, uh, there's a difference between, you know, the being honest and then, you know, having boundaries and, and realizing that maybe the person across from you is not a trustworthy person for you to be <laughs> that open and transparent with. Right. Um, what, are, what are they doing with that information? Right. You share it? And is that hurting me to be that honest and that transparent, right? Um, even if we don't realize it, that's something that like kind of comes a little bit later down the line in recovery. Um, because honestly, at that time, people are just so relieved to not be in the same kind of pain that they had been, to have like a reprieve, to have a community, to have people who, you know, uh, approve of them, will show up for them. Um, and then a lot of times that's not things that they have. And that's, that's the things that do work about the recovery community as, um, when people show up, they really show up. Um, Mm -hmm. and because they're people that know what it's like to have nobody. And then, then they know what it's like to at least have nobody in a moment, you know, when they really, really needed somebody. Um, so back to my original point of decriminalizing the use of drugs with the amount of money that we spend on law enforcement and um, the costs of having inmates in our jails and in our prisons, if that money were rerouted into public health and rerouted into the resources that we already have um, to expand so they could for once have enough resources to serve the the size of the need in the community, um, I think that's when we're really going to see the results that we want um, because ultimately we want to see less people overdosing we want to see fewer people um having continued reoccurrence of use we want to see fewer people suffering um due to their mental health um diagnoses or struggles we we want to be able to see people not only doing better as a community but having that autonomy and that that personal autonomy to say this is what it looks like for me um and when somebody is arrested that that eliminates all personal autonomy right and i know that there are things like drug courts and i'm i'm split on drug courts and i will explain why so on one hand drug courts are a lot better than where we were um you know there's a benefit to choosing to go through a drug court you can well one you don't go to prison and uh, <laughs> that's that's a pretty big right? benefit <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and you can work to not have that drug charge on your record which means you know you have uh an opportunity to get to get somewhere to to find something that looks like recovery for that person. On the other hand, when you micromanage and control every area of somebody's life and you have the power to take away their freedom, of course it's going to look like it's successful. But I have the opportunity to sit down and talk with people when they're no longer involved in any of that or when they didn't succeed in that because some of the expectations are 
a lot higher than I think the people realize. Yeah. Because they, they know the resources are there, but they don't necessarily know the process to get access to that resource. Or so they don't really know what they're assigning. Yeah, I think so. I think sometimes it's like, um, you've got to check in, do this, you need to do mm-hmm. this, this, report this, report this. And mm-hmm. you're not thinking about like how much time that takes or where do right. you got to go to do that? And yeah. you're telling me I got to keep this job and mm-hmm. I got to. And what job is going to let you leave that much? Right. And all of those things. And it's like, right. it's. I've heard stories where it almost feels almost contradictory. Yeah. Like what you're asking on one side of it to get yourself up to speed. Mm -hmm. But now I'm going to give you all of these hurdles, which the hurdles are supposed to be what like check-ins to kind of keep you on path. But sometimes they come feel like they come across as legitimately more obstacles to keep you from being successful. And what ends up happening is, remember how I talked about, like, every time that I would fail and everything that was really, really hard, like, I would blame myself for? Mm-hmm. That's that's what I see over and over again. It's not, you know, they when, when everybody around you is telling you, like, why can't you just do this? Like, this is just such a normal thing. There must be something wrong with you. Like, you, you believe that. Because it seems like everybody else is experiencing this and they're they're going through it and they're just better at it than me. I, I must really suck. Which is probably an inherent belief that they have about themselves in the first place. Um, or if they don't have it, you know, if we're not coming from generational trauma, we're, we're coming from somebody who, you know, um, got caught up in addiction due to an injury or an illness, they already think that there's something wrong with them that they couldn't kick it. Like, what is wrong with me? This is why can't I do this? And and then that shame spiral comes. Right. And that, and again, remember when we flick, inflict pain on people who use substances as a response to pain, they're going to use more substances. Um, and while I have to say that every time I see a big drug bust um, where the, you know, the substances fentanyl or meth are taken off the street. Like I do breathe like a sigh of relief. Like I do, I I will admit that, but it's temporary. And I know that it's temporary because taking down that drug dealer just created an economic opportunity for somebody else to get out of poverty and people will do anything to get out of poverty. Um, Poverty is only romantic on TV. So I see the need for law enforcement, definitely. I'm not anti-law enforcement, but as a measure of treating addiction, it's it's like bloodletting somebody with schizophrenia. It's not it's it's not effective and kind of nonsensical and harmful. Um and when 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 we are sentencing people to things that like only certain people are able to come all the way through on and other groups end up failing every time we have to stop and go wait why is that why is that what is our recidivism rate and up to this point you know recovery and and addiction has just always been an alcoholism excuse me, has kind of just always been considered a lost cause type situation. Um, so the assumption is, well, what can you do? There, you know, but when, 
when somebody with diabetes, for example, if they're not responding to a specific time, type of insulin, the response is, well, what are you going to do with those pancreases? They just don't want their pancreas to work. Like you just, you have to want it bad enough. You have to do all the things. No, we don't do that. We change the insulin we give them. We change the treatment. We, we adapt them to what their needs are. Right. And we're not as willing to do that um, with people in recovery. It's still, the stigma is a lot better. It is, it has just in, in my lifetime, stigma has gotten a lot better, but we still have a long, long way to go with this. Um, especially within law enforcement, especially within the medical care systems. Those are some of the most difficult communities to get empathy from when, when it comes to this. Um, not that there isn't some measure of it, but there's still this idea that, you know, people can't live self-directed lives and figure out how to recover. We have to make them. And so part of what I do, like a big part of what I do is like I remove all of the barriers and the obstacles. Like I know all the ins and outs and the loopholes and the, the labyrinth maze of insurance and county systems and assessment systems and mm. getting somebody into treatment, right? Because yep. you, it's not as simple as just like opening up your phone book. That's right. I dated myself. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, and, and, and looking up the number and then giving them a call, you know, it's not as easy as going on a website and sending an email. There's a lot, right. there's a lot of processes to be able to do that. Right. Um, and that stops a lot of people. And it's not necessarily that the providers don't want to provide, but you know, they're, they, they have to have their funding to, in order to provide. Right. Um, so that gives them some, some struggles too. And then being able to keep staff um, is a struggle everybody's having. Facts. So what I do a lot of times is I'm, I'm looking at their paperwork of what they're required to do. Um, I like break down what all of these acronyms mean um, and what, what people, what, what the county or, you know, what their social worker or what their probation officer are going to be looking for to see. And I try to help them get started on that you know, before their sentencing, before their disposition um, court hearing, um, before a CHIPS petition is even filed so that, you know, we can mitigate that amount of time uh, where they're like taken completely out of their life because those struggles of the system, those traps, once you're in the system can contribute to somebody, you know, diving further into their addiction. And if you just have somebody that's like, no, I get it. Um, here's what you got to do. You don't want to do that. Okay, cool. Let me know what you do want to do. And if we, we can find a thing, but like, for example, if somebody is, so in Appleton, um, if somebody wants to get, um, some like either methadone or suboxone, uh, through the, the clinic up there, they are required to, um, go to individual counseling once a week and group counseling once a week. And they have to do, I believe it's a minimum of five UAs. Um, so they can make sure that they're not taking anything that's going to interact with the medications for safety, all of those reasons. Right. Right. Um, you know, but then if you have a court order that is also requiring you to take these parenting classes, on top of, um, you know, three other, you know, supervised UAs, which we could just have a whole podcast on, like, what that means. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
uh, and what they're requiring of people to do and how much bodily autonomy and, and then never, you know, forget about, you know, sexual assault trauma survivors who have to do this stuff. And then they're, you know, treated as they're just being defiant. Um, and so, so, so the worker or the probation officer doesn't think that they're asking that much, but they don't realize what the, how much of their time is required to get access to the things that they need in order to check off the things on their list. And I, I right. don't think that it's, I don't think that that's intentional. I have come to learn that, um, some of it has to do a lot with turnover, like social worker turnover, law enforcement turnover, and then um, not having any uh, structured way of introducing new staff to the, because they've got so many other things to learn um, what the resources are in the community. So they end up having to like relearn that every time that they're there. So, and then they don't know all the steps. They're like, just go to this place. They'll help you. Yeah, well, they'll help you, but here's what you need to have. And if you don't have all of those things, then it creates another barrier and you got to come back and then it's another date. And then it's another day off of work and you're supposed to keep your, um, employment. Oh yeah. And if you're in drug court, well then you're also supposed to be volunteering, but you have a drug uh, charge on your record. So there's a lot of places that are not going to let you volunteer because you have a drug Mm. charge on your record. And if you don't volunteer, and then there's only certain places that will, and then they are full because everybody Everybody else is already there. And so then there's a waiting list and then you don't end up getting to complete, you know, drug court successfully. And then, um, having you need to be able to have reliable transportation to get there and mm. i can tell you from experience that valley transit is great and i think we need to invest more in it because it takes two hours one direction to get from appleton to oshkosh okay so even if you're living on like i don't know what is that calumet street in appleton that's just barely in winnebago county and you've got to get over here to the co- the courthouse right um or even just to the one in nina you know that takes a lot of time it takes a lot of time just to get the transit there and yeah so there's just a number of obstacles and barriers um, that people run into on the lowest levels that um, people who are very well intended um, higher up don't get to see every day because they're handling a lot of other um, very important details too and I also see how um, you know, somebody can start as a social worker or, uh, you know, police officer and they see the problem and they want to make a change in the system. So they realize they got to go higher. So they go higher and then they are like, well, I still can't make this change. And then they got to go higher still. And as they, as they go higher and higher, right. Um, with, with this intention, they, they move farther and farther away from the people people and, and, and being able to have that contact, which is difficult because I get it too, right? There are some reasons for that, especially if you're in a position where you have to be making some very difficult decisions of things that you don't want to do or that, you know, just human to human, regardless of the roles, people, it's a lot to ask them to do that. Right. Um, but so if you have somebody else that makes that decision for you and you have no choice but to go act that out, it makes it a little bit easier on like that person's mental health because secondhand trauma is a thing. Um, so as they move farther and farther away, you know, they don't get to see how that change plays out on the bottom. No, there's usually a disconnect. Yeah. So then they don't get to see if that is working fully structurally and they don't get to, um, they, you know, and then, and people put their whole heart into this stuff. So it's really difficult to say, Hey, you were really well intended. 
Um, but this was your impact and you're responsible for both. Um, and that's one that people don't, they don't like that one. <laughs> no, I do think that's a tough scenario because you, you see it in a bunch of institutions. I mean, mm-hmm. same thing happens in education. Um, the higher up you go in education, the less you interact with the student mm-hmm. and then you lose ground and, yeah. You know, or you might not even be truly interacting with the educators at that level anymore, yeah. you know. And I think that just happens in a lot of institutions. It does, yeah. Um, and if you don't know what's going on on the front line, mm-hmm. it's really hard to fix it. Like, it is. At the point of true interaction with who the constituents truly are. Yeah. And then, you know, the people who are in the most vulnerable positions are the, only, the ones that end up paying for that. Right. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one. Like I said, if, if, uh, if I measured my, my success by seeing justice had, I would have bow out a long time ago. Is there anything else you'd like to add about addiction policy? I think we need to seriously reassess what that means. We we tend to get stuck in our silos of this is this lane, this is this lane, this is this lane. And for certain things, that's necessary, especially when you're talking about like tax filings and grants and, and things like that. Um, but we can't look at addiction as like a single issue because it's not. Um, there's so you, you can't talk about addiction is a symptom of suffering. It's symptom of a sickness. And as a society, we're sick, man. (laughs) Um, you know, when you don't have access to basic things like healthcare, when you don't have access to housing, when you don't have access to decent food, um, you know, even when you don't have access to even human touch, like we need these basic things. And there's so many obstacles to all of those things for so many people and that create pain that cause pain and addiction is a result of pain. Um, I think we really need to change the way that we think about this from tough love to what really, what love really means. Thank you. I felt that. Okay. It's the time of the show. We're going to start winding down. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kosh listeners, for giving us time, spending time with us, um, sharing your minds with us, um, listening to this conversation. We appreciate you. Um, We're a work in progress. We're always trying to do better. Um, So let us know how we're doing. Um, Please, please, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Um, It's really easy. You can email us at askthekosh at gmail.com. Once again, that is askthekosh at gmail.com. If you want to be a guest, uh, if there's a topic you want us to talk about, if you want to have us do a shout out on your behalf, you can do that. Um, We can do all of those things. Also, uh, we do have a voicemail. So if you want a voicemail in that... Uh, you can do that too and just uh, leave us a message or if you would like to have like a shout out birthday wish whatever on to the cash we can do that too um you can reach us at 
980-385-9298. Once again, that is 920-385-9298. And gosh, listeners, as you know, I do got a couple of requests for you. I need there's some things I need y'all to help us continue to improve and move up in ratings and such. Um, please, please, please make a little time if you listen to the show. Leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. Um, but it also helps um, the distributors of podcasts um, know that people are actually listening and how they feel about it. So leave us a review, uh, subscribe to the show, um, and share these episodes with your circle of people. Um, I think we have some pretty powerful conversations that happen on here. And um, I'm sure we all know people who could benefit from that, like today's uh conversation because I think we are all we all know someone who's struggled with some type of addiction uh, and if we don't know them personally we're probably one degree of separation from knowing someone right and it's usually not someone far away it's family close friends and such uh, for whatever reason that they they do have these issues so thank you again um, now it is my favorite time of the show. It is shout out time. So this is where we get the shout outs. And Patty, who do you got? You want to shout out? Uh, well, I got a shout out to my kids, Silhouette, Jackson, Kailua, and Mahina. They're going to be really stoked to hear their voice or their names on a radio. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> For sure. And um, shout out to um, my emotional support human, my husband, Jesse Heffernan, um, who. We've been through a lot, and he um, has helped hold me up to do the work that I do today. So, yeah, those are my shout-outs for today. Okay, awesome. All right, my shout-outs, and usually I have a big, long list, but I actually don't have that long of a list today, which is, you know, I don't know if it's good or bad, but it is what it is. And uh, my shout-outs today are going to go to all pa- uh, all my past guests here on the Kosh. Um, we hit a milestone a couple episodes ago. We hit 75 episodes. I think that's really awesome. We're creeping our way towards a hundred episodes, um, sometime this year, which will be fantastic. And, um, just the fact that people continue to want to come on here and have this conversation and, and get on this platform and share whatever it is that they're sharing with our community, um, to give them another voice, another perspective, you know, I think we do a really good job on here of having a really diverse group of individuals on all sorts of professional and personal levels. And the conversation, if it's not anything, it's a, it's very authentic. And I, and I think there's a lot to say for that. And we couldn't do that without these guests who make time to come in and sit down in the little studio. <laughs> <laughs> which is my daughter's old bedroom. Uh, and we do a little recording and it's kind of fantastic. Um, I want to send a shout out to Garrett, send a shout out to fat mama. And I want to send a shout out to um, the parks and rec department in Appleton uh, and facilities who had a hand in trying in reconstructing my office, which they did this sweet job. And Timber's got a, a, a new remodeled office and um, it was just amazing. They were, 
like they were so cool about it and ecstatic about it. And we giggled about it and they let me make all these choices. And I kept telling them, I don't know. I don't know what I want. (laughs) That's the worst, right? People actually ask you what you want. And you're like, I don't know, but I wouldn't know. I'm, I usually, whenever anybody asks me that question, I I usually know exactly what I want (laughs) in Uh, case you couldn't tell. I think I couldn't tell. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to send a very special shout out to them also. Now, we are at the, we got one thing left. We're at the end of the show. And Patty, this is the option. Okay. You got an A, B, and a C. Okay. So. I was always and, good at multiple choice. See, that's why I made it multiple choice. Okay. Because you know what? I like multiple choice tests. Like I, I thought I was good at them. If you don't know the answer, it's C every time. Oh, then let, maybe it's going to be C this time. I mean, so, don't listen to me, though. I graduated with a 1.99. Like, don't take any wisdom from me <laughs> on <don't> test. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, option A is to share some parting words of wisdom. Option B is what would yourself today tell your 13-year-old self? And option C is what it is on most tests, all of the above. So <laughs> which one would you like? Oh, boy. I guess we can do a little bit of all of the above. Like I said, the answer is C, right? Yeah. Um, I think what I would tell my 13-year-old self is, no, you are actually right, and it is everybody else. Everybody else is crazy. It's not you. Um, that's what I would tell her. Um Cause man, that girl needed to hear that. And, uh, oh gosh, parting words of wisdom. Gee, I don't know on the spot like that. I just have to say when the zombie apocalypse comes, don't set any on fire. They just walk around setting things on fire. Then <laughs> don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Love it. All right. What'd you think? Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. The cash. 